So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them now to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 is where we'll be today. Only 11 verses. We move on now from where we've been in chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John uh, to write to those seven churches in Asia Minor, to one of the most extraordinary passages in all of Scripture depicting in fantastic terminology the grandeur and the splendor and the glory of God on his throne in heaven. As we do this, I want us to consider together those seven churches that we just finished studying. What were they going through there in the first century? And what was happening in the wider culture around them? And as we think about this incredible vision of the throne of God, as John records it in this chapter, as we think about this vision through that lens of this vision for the church today will begin to take shape. And so let's read together Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Church, this is God's word. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne... We're burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Would you pray with me? 
Oh God, we thank you so much for this book that we hold in our hands. We trust it to be your very breath. And Father, we're so thankful of this awesome picture of your throne room. Father, I ask that you would be with us as we consider this vision that you had the Apostle Paul record for us. And Father, we ask that you would allow these words to enlarge our understanding of who you are. That you do not fit in the little boxes that we put you in. That even heaven itself, we're told, cannot contain your glory. And so, Father, I pray that you would be with us as we look at this passage. Help me, Father. I bring to the table the distinct potential to cheapen these words with my explanation. Oh, God, prevent that from happening. Instead, would you speak to your church this morning and enlarge our view of who you are. And Father, may may that bear fruit and real life implications to our life as we consider what it means that this worship is happening as we speak this morning. That you are the God of magnificent glory and majesty and you deserve the praise and worship of all creation we pray this in jesus name amen so john begins here by saying after this i looked and behold there was a door open in heaven And so after Jesus finishes dictating those seven letters to those seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, John continues in this vision and he sees a door opened in heaven, a door through which Jesus will transport John in the Spirit to behold this vision of the throne of God in heaven. And then Jesus speaks to him. Jesus speaks to John here. John John says, The voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. This is a reference back to chapter 1. When John first got his vision, he heard the voice like a sound of trumpet behind him. And he turned around and he saw, he, he writes, he saw one who was like a son of man. Who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is Jesus speaking to John here. And he invites him to come up here. This this is an invitation by Jesus to John. Into this. To to go through this door. Open into heaven in the spirit. to, To behold and to record. This vision of the throne of God in heaven. He says come up here. Now, some have taken this to be a reference to what the Bible calls elsewhere the rapture. The rapture is that event that's alluded to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where the apostle says that when Jesus comes back, those who are still alive will be, he says, caught up together with one another to meet the Lord in the air. 
Now, as we go through the Revelation, we're going to talk a lot more about that idea of a rapture and what it is and, and even when that might take place. But some see a reference symbolically to it here as Jesus tells John, come up here. But there's absolutely nothing in this text that says anything about the rapture. And I believe it's highly unlikely that John's first century audience would have been thinking that way. Instead, they would have simply seen this as Jesus inviting John into a deeper and higher vision so that he might behold and record through this window into the throne room this vision of Almighty God. And then at the end of verse 1, there's the second after this. He says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And so Jesus says, there's something that must take place. And then he locates the timing of what must take place. It must take place after this. So after what? There's a, there's a, a sense of timing here that we have to come to grips with. And so what is the this that what must take place comes after? Well, there's two ways for us to understand this. We've made reference to this before in our study of Revelation. The this here could refer to the first century and what's happening to the church in the first century during John's day. And if that's what this refers to, then after this is the, the church age that comes after the first century, the age in which we're still in. And so he would be talking in this vision about things that are currently happening. Or the this could refer to the church age itself that was already happening in John's day. And in that case, the after this would be that which comes after the church age, which would be the eschatological end of time. The former understanding there is what we've already referred to as the preterist view which is the understanding that much of what Revelation is speaking about has either already happened in the reader's past or is currently happening in the reader's present. The latter understanding is what we have termed the futurist view, that understanding of Revelation that most of what Revelation speaks of, at least from this point on, is going to happen in the future. Now, I think I've made myself clear that I prefer the latter understanding, the, the futurist understanding of the book of Revelation. But I do believe that the preterist view is very possible. And so as we go throughout John's vision, as we walk throughout the rest of Revelation and work our way through these various visions... I intend to also show how these passages could be also understood from a preterist perspective. Now, I do that for two reasons. One, because quite honestly, I don't want the preterists in here to check out. Just because we're saying this is something that happens in the future and you think it's happening now, I don't want you to check out, right? But I also do this partly because I'm hedging my bets, because I might turn out to be a preterist by the time we finish studying this. And so just hang on, but don't get your hopes up. So Jesus begins to show John what will happen after this. But we should note here that that which happens isn't happening yet, right? Chapter 4, as we just read it, is just a static snapshot 
of the throne of God. The happening doesn't happen until, until chapter 5. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So in chapter 5, as we look at it next week, we're going to see this scroll. And the scroll is going to be given to the lamb, Jesus, because he's the only one who can open the scroll. And in chapter 6, we're going to see that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. And the lamb begins to open those seals one by one. And, and, and that's the happening that Jesus says must take place after this. In chapter 4, there is no happening that is happening, right? In chapter 4, we just get a static snapshot of the throne of God in heaven. Now, we shouldn't say just a snapshot of the throne of God. Because this is one of the most amazing passages of Scripture that describes for, some, for us something that all of us who know Jesus by faith will one day see with our own eyes. John's description here highlights the majesty and glory of God and reveals him as the only one who is worthy of the worship of all creation. And that is the main point of this chapter that we, that you and I, would behold the majesty and glory and magnificence and wonder and splendor and grandeur of the glory of God on his throne and, and, and believe and embrace the fact that he alone deserves all of our worship. That is what Jesus is after in giving this vision to the apostle John. Now, the words that are used in this chapter are John's attempt to use an earthly language to describe an unearthly reality. Mankind's language has no earthly correspondence to much of what John sees in this vision. And so... He's using, doing the best that he can to describe for us, earth dwellers, who speak earthbound language, to understand this unearthly scene. It, it would be not unlike you and I trying to describe a sunset over the ocean to someone who is blind. We, we, we might say that the sun is a ball of fire. We, we might try to describe the red in the sky as a, as a spray of blood or, or, a, or a, a, a gathering of pillows of red or whatever. We, we might des describe the, the light, the sun, as it's shimmering off of the, the, the ocean across the horizon as a, as a sea of diamonds. That's what John is trying to do for us here. We are the blind ones. He is the one who can see as he's given this vision of the throne of God in heaven. And he's trying to use an earthly language to describe this heavenly scene. Parenthetically, because of that, in attempting to provide explanation to what John writes here as he sees this vision, we run the very real risk of losing some of the grandeur and the splendor of the vision itself. 
given our example of trying to describe a sunset over the ocean to a blind man, if we were to try to explain that further and say, when I call it a ball of fire, what I mean is that it's spherical in shape and that it's reddish brown, in, reddish orange in color. And in talking about the spray of blood across the sky, what I mean there is that there are stratocumulus clouds in the sky and they are reflecting the solar rays of the light and giving it the same kind of orangish hue. Now that might help that blind man understand a little bit more scientifically what was happening, but isn't there something lost in that description? There, there is a beauty and a, and a splendor to seeing a, a, a sun setting over the ocean that simply cannot be contained and cannot be conveyed by those kinds of technically precise terms. And so first and foremost, there are no technically precise terms to convey the vision that John has here. Earthly language just falls short here. But secondly, to try and unpack all of the nuances of this symbolic language in this chapter runs the risk of missing some of the main point of chapter 4. That we would walk away in awe of the glory and majesty and splendor of God and say that He alone is worthy of all of our worship. And we miss that. We miss that if we try to dive down into all the nuances. And so I'm going to do my best this morning to try to explain the text without cheapening it. And by the way, I've also I've asked the guys to only put up on the screen just a, just a blank background. There's no, there's no PowerPoint outline this Sunday, partly because I want to be like Matt, but, <laughs> but partly because um, I just, I, I, don't, I don't want to reduce this incredible vision to an outline okay so if you if you need to take notes take notes but I, I want you to just in your mind's eye gain a perspective of what Paul is of what John is describing here when he describes this the throne in heaven so how does he describe it in verse 2 he says at once I was in the spirit which means this vision was enabled by the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne So this vision in chapter 4 is all about the throne and the one seated on the throne. The word throne is used 14 times in just the 11 short verses of chapter 4. Whereas in chapter 5, it's the exact same setting, but that word is only used five times in those 14 verses. So this is all about the throne of God and all that that means and the one sitting on the throne and all that that means. And so he sees a throne And one is seated on the throne. Who is seated on the throne? We're told later in the song of the four living creatures in verse 8 that the one who is seated on the throne is the Lord God Almighty. So this is not Jesus on the throne here. This is God the Father, the Lord Almighty. This is Yahweh on his throne. I think it's interesting that that he's, he's almost indescribable. The only thing that John uses here to describe the one sitting on the throne is that he has the appearance of jasper and carnelian. These are both very precious gemstone, one being red or yellow in color, the other reddish brown. Now, some scholars have attempted to try to uh, nail down the, what these gemstones, these and others that are used throughout this passage and other passages of the vision of the throne of God, 
that, that they refer to different things and they, they are symbolic of different nuances. But I don't think that's what's intended here. Again, John is doing his best to use an earthly language to describe an unearthly scene. I think the best that we can say here is that the, the, the brilliance and the beauty and the value of these precious gemstones is the closest thing he could find to describe the one seated on the throne. John's description here of the throne of God in heaven in Revelation 4 is similar, bears similarity to a couple of other places in Scripture where we see a description of the throne of God through a vision. One is in Isaiah chapter 6 through the prophet Isaiah. The other is in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2. And so there are lots of similarities between those two, and I would uh, encourage you to spend some time reading those passages this week to get a fuller grip of this. But one of those similarities is seen here in the description of the one who sat on the throne. Ezekiel's vision says in chapter 1 that the throne itself had the appearance of sapphire, another precious gemstone, and that the one sitting on the throne had the appearance of gleaming metal above the waist and fire below the waist and with brightness all around. That's the same idea. That's the same idea. And so the brightness and the the brilliance and the luster of these precious gemstones is meant to convey to us something of the glory of God. The, The glory, church, the glory of God is the shining magnificence and the shining manifestation of all that it means to be God. You wrap up all of the divine attributes of what it means to be God. His holiness, His omnipotence, His justice, His omniscience, His perfect love, His grace, His immutability, His impeccability, His power. You wrap all of that together and you put it on display. That is the glory of God. The sum total of what it means to be God made manifest through brilliant, shining display. And that's what John is describing here by referring to these precious stones, the glory of God. And we should also note here that in this vision, God is seated on his throne. He's not standing behind it. He's not standing to the side of it. He is seated on this throne. And that's a very clear and unmistakable picture to us of the sovereignty of God, that he's in control. He's seated on his throne. He's not feverishly trying to fix things down on earth. He's not... Uh, worriedly peering down from heaven to see what's going on with his people. No, he is seated on his throne. He is in control. He is sovereign, which means that there's nothing that escapes his notice. And that there's nothing that happens that isn't part of his sovereign will and plan. The Lord seated on his throne is also a picture to us of his perfect justice And his right to rule all of the universe. You see, whoever sits on the throne is the ruler. He makes the rules. He's the highest authority. He's the law of the land. And he has the right to judge. And his rule and his reign and his authority are over all those who are under him. And so in this brief snapshot of the one sitting on the throne... Already we see the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, and his rightful rule over all of creation. 
But then John, in verse 3, describes the throne itself. He says, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Uh, Ezekiel's vision also talks about a rainbow. Ezekiel 1, verse 28 says, Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such, he says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. In Ezekiel 1, the rainbow is used by the prophet to describe the one sitting on the throne. In Revelation 4, the rainbow is used to describe the throne itself. And he says that it's like an emerald in appearance, a green precious gemstone. It's like an emerald in appearance. Again, this is all adding to the picture of the glory of God, the sum total of all of his attributes made manifest, put on display. And John's best attempt to describe it here is that it was like a rainbow of pure emerald encircling the throne. Or as Ezekiel put it, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So what's happening around this throne? John writes in verse 4, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So who are these 24 elders? I think it's best to understand them to be some sort of angelic, heavenly beings whose job it is to endlessly worship God. Now, some have said that they might be actual elders, elders of churches, in that sense that they are redeemed people uh, that who, will, who will one day offer worship before the throne of God. But later in chapter 5, as we'll see next week, and then also in chapter 7, these 24 elders are clearly distinguished from the redeemed. And they're not part of the redeemed. Now, I agree with commentators that say they probably represent the redeemed in heaven as angelic beings. They, they represent the church. They represent the people of God. The number 24, uh, perhaps referring to the 12 patriarchs of Israel of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament, both comprising the people of God, the church. And I think that's probably a good estimation. But all we can really say is that they're not people, but they are some kind of angelic creature, not unlike the four living creatures that we'll see in just a moment, whose job it is to worship before the throne for all of eternity. And we're told that they're seated on the thrones. They've got their own thrones and they're seated on them, which tells us that perhaps they have some kind of role in in, in governing and ruling the universe under the authority of the Lord God Almighty, who's on his throne. They wear garments of white, which is the typical clothing of angels, and they have golden crowns on their heads. And we'll see what they're going to do with their crowns in just a moment. But as we zoom out a little bit farther from the throne, John sees more of what's going on around the, around the throne. Look at verses 5 and 6. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. <clears throat> and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Again, I, I don't want to cheapen 
these words by trying to parse them out too much. But I think what we ought to notice here is that John uses three different senses to convey the power that's on display here. He uses the senses of sight and sound and touch. We see the flashes of lightning, we hear the peals of thunder, and we feel the rumbling of that thunder. And, and you know, we can identify with this in our own life, right? You've been caught outside during a severe thunderstorm, or maybe you're inside, just you're, you're, you're at your window with that raging thunderstorm right outside, and you're watching as the rain comes down, and then all of a sudden there's this bright flash right in front of you, immediately followed by this clap of thunder, and if you're close enough to the window, you feel the house shaking and the, and the window rattling. That's something of what John is using here to describe the throne of God. He saw the flashes of brilliant brightness. He heard the clap of thunder and he felt the rumblings of it in his soul. What an incredible display of power that must have been to behold. Like the world's largest, most powerful, most magnificent fireworks display that we've ever seen. A show of fireworks so big and so huge, and so powerful, and so loud, and so relentless, that we kind of stop and we wonder, this is just a fireworks show, right? This kind of scene would make any of us feel small, and powerless, and, and seemingly insignificant. Who are we in light of this awesome display of power? Mankind's power and might and ingenuity pale in comparison to this. Seem impotent almost in view of this display of power that we see. We also see the Holy Spirit here. Second half verse, of verse 5 says, Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. The, the number seven referring to the number of perfection, the number of completeness. And just as it did in chapter one, the phrase, the seven spirits of God, refers to the Holy Spirit. So we should be very clear here. The Holy Spirit is one. John is not saying that there are seven Holy Spirits. We recall in chapters two and three, at the end of each one of his letters, what did he say? He who has an ear to hear, let him hear with the Spirit, singular says to the churches. But this reference to the seven spirits of God around the throne all throughout the book of Revelation refers to the perfection of the Holy Spirit. And so here we see the Spirit before the throne of God in the form of these seven torches of fire. We back away even further from the throne in John's vision and he tells us in verse 6 that before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And that conveys to us a sense of peace and calm and tranquility. And I, and I think the contrast is intentional. We should note here the juxtaposition of those two contrasting images. On the one hand, above the throne, there's what? There are the flashes of lightning and the peals and crash of thunder. And before the throne, there is yet still a sea of glass, peaceful and tranquil like crystal. I don't know if you've ever seen the, 
the sea during a violent thunderstorm, but it is anything but a sea of glass. Instead, it is a cauldron of waves and whitecaps of chaos and violence, which is why the poets refer to a storm over the ocean as a tempest, because it symbolizes violence and chaos and evil. But that's not what John sees here, is it? Though the lightning rages overhead, though the thunder claps loudly, in front of the throne is this sea of glass, peaceful and unbothered by the storm raging overhead. As I read this, I was reminded of the words of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. I don't know what Selah means. Nobody does. But I think here it means something of yet, yet this. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Friend, God never comes unhinged he is immutable which means he never changes he never freaks out he is steady and in him is found perfect peace and tranquility no matter what storms are raging around us or in us In him is found peace. John goes on to describe some of the creatures who are around the throne. Look at verse 6 and following. He says, around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature like a face of, with the face of a man. The fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. The four living creatures here bear a a striking similarity to the seraphim of Isaiah 6 and the cherubim of Ezekiel's prophecy. So like the seraphim and the cherubim, these four living creatures are angelic heavenly beings of some sort, like the elders. And they represent all of God's creation. The lion represents the wild beast. The ox represents the the domesticated beast. The man represents man. And the eagle represents flying creatures. And so together, they are representative of all of God's creation in nature. And John makes particular mention here of their eyes and their wings. Twice, he says, that they are full of eyes. In front and behind, all around and within. And this reference to an abundance of eyes being everywhere is probably a reference to their vigilance and their intelligence. 
And then they've got six wings, which is probably a reference to the fact that they are swift of flight and they are very strong. And so they are intelligent, they are powerful, they are fast. But what's their job? Their job, as recorded by John, is to worship. Verse 8, and day by day, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They never cease to say this. This is endless worship. It's happening right now. It was happening as you were putting the kids in the car. It was happening as you were sleeping soundly last night on your pillow. It is happening at this very moment, this endless praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The seraphim of Isaiah 6 saying, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. In ancient Hebrew and in ancient Greek, in those languages, uh, they didn't have an exclamation mark with which the writer could use to draw emphasis to a point they were wanting to make. They didn't have boldface font. They didn't have underlines. They didn't have emojis or, or all the other ways that we have to draw emphasis to something. In those languages, the, the, there were two ways, two options for the writer to write emphasis. One was repetition. If you repeated a word once, it was important. If you repeated it twice, it was very important. And the other way to draw emphasis was by changing the order of the words in a sentence and putting a word at the beginning of a sentence that normally would be found at the end of a sentence, changing the subject and the predicate around. And so it was one thing to say God is holy. It was another thing to say God is holy, holy. And it was another thing, again, to say God is holy, holy, holy. But if you really wanted to draw emphasis to the holiness of God, instead of saying the Lord God Almighty is holy, 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 you would say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Did you know that the holiness of God is the only divine attribute of our creator that is ever mentioned three times in scripture? And it's done for us twice here in Revelation 4 and in Isaiah 6. Holiness of God refers to his transcendence, that he is not like us. He is set apart. He is different. He is not common. To say that something is holy means that it is not common. It is sacred. We are not holy. We, we are common. God is holy, holy, holy. And Jesus, through this vision, draws emphasis to the holiness of God. So here we see these four living creatures as representatives of all of creation. And they are at this very moment worshiping God and magnifying His holiness. And they also sing of His eternality, the, the eternality of God, the everlasting nature of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
The everlasting nature of God is repeated twice more in verses 9 and 10, as we'll see in a moment, as John describes the one who sits on the throne as him who lives forever and ever. He has no beginning, and he has no end. So what have we got so far? We've got the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, God as ruler and maker and judge of all creation, the one in whom is unmatchable power and yet also unshakable peace. And now we add to that his holiness and his eternal nature, that he has no beginning and will have no end. Friend, the only legitimate and justifiable response to this vision is worship. The worship of all creation and the worship of us, the church. And that's what we see in the closing three verses. Look at verse 9 and following. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So the four living creatures are ceaselessly worshiping God, giving glory and honor and thanks. And when they do this, the 24 elders, again, representing the people of God throughout the centuries, the church, the body of Christ, fall down before the one on the throne and worship him. And and they throw their crowns at his feet. And they sing of his worthiness to be worshiped, to receive glory and honor and power. And friend, this is happening at this very moment. This is happening right now. And this is the scene into which all of those who are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ will one day be interjected as well. We will find ourselves in this very scene. And we will fall down on our knees and we will cast our crowns at his feet. Any crowns, any any rewards that have been granted to us in this life for faithfully living for Jesus, we will cast them down in abject worship of our God and King. And we will sing of his worthiness to receive glory and honor and power forever. Now what does all this mean? Is there anything for us to apply from this text? Anything we should do as a result of this vision? Well, in answering that, we must first ask, how did John's original audience, how would they have reacted to this vision? Remember that John wrote the revelation to the first century church in Asia Minor. He wrote it to them to encourage them to persevere, to not give up, to keep going until the end. And the church at that time was a distinct minority and a distinctly marginalized people within a larger culture of the day. They were facing persecution from all sides, from the Jews and from the Romans. And Jesus has John write this vision of the revelation to encourage them not to give up. Don't quit. Remain in the faith to the end, no matter how bad it gets. 
And to this people, John seeks to put into words here in chapter 4 the grandeur, the glory, the splendor of God in this vision of him on his throne. I can't think of anything that would encourage the first century more than this vision of the throne of God in heaven. To a people who were being pressured to worship the emperor, as we saw in those letters, and to worship the other pagan gods. To this people, Yahweh gives a vision of himself seated on a throne in heaven, heightening his majesty and his glory, and that he alone deserves all the worship of creation. To a people facing persecution, he gives a vision of his sovereignty and his eternality, that your suffering is but for a time. Look what will be forever. To a people struggling to keep the moral ethics of a heavenly kingdom while living among and proclaiming the gospel to a people with a much different moral ethic. He gives a vision of his holiness. To a people who felt alone and powerless amidst the chaos and the violence of their culture. God gives a vision of his unmatched power and his unshakable peace. And so with this vision, the church in the first century would have been encouraged to keep fighting the fight. They would have been challenged to put no other gods before this God. Their affections would have been drawn to the glory and majesty of this king. And so they would have grown to love him more than they already did. They would have been heartened in the face of fierce persecution, that God is still on his throne. They would have been moved to offer unto this God their highest praise, honor, and worship. Church, our, our response should be no different than theirs. And so in light of this vision of the glory of God on his eternal throne, let, let me encourage you in three or four ways. First, let me encourage you in light of this vision to search your heart. Search your heart. Are there any other gods there? Are there any other idols in your life that vie for the worship that only this God deserves? Secondly, let me encourage you to firmly come to grasp with, to firmly believe and be encouraged by the fact that though you are in the face of trials and persecution, no matter what comes, the Lord's still on his throne. He's still sovereign. He's still in control. And let me encourage you that as you fight against sin in this world filled with sin, as you fight against sin and temptation, consider this vision here of the power and the holiness of God and be reminded what Paul says, if he is for us, who can be against us? And perhaps most of all, let me encourage you to consider that this is the God against whom we have all rebelled. This is the God against whom we have sinned. This is the God to whom we will all one day be accountable for our lives and the decisions we've made and the things that we've done and the sin that we have committed. 
this is also the God, this God, who loved us enough to send his son, the lamb that we'll see next week, who would live the perfect life and die in our place so that sinners like you and I could be justified to stand in the presence of this God now and forever. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, your Redeemer, your Savior, your King, then friend, your, your main response to this vision is worship. Not just with your lips as we sing a song in just a moment, but with your lives. So behold the glory of God on his throne and live your life as a worship service to him. But if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you've been in church all your life, but if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ's finished work on the, on the cross as your only hope to be rescued from deserved judgment, then your only response to this vision is fear. Fear. Because this is the God to whom you will one day have to give an account for your life. If that describes you, I beg of you, stop trying to earn favor with this God. You can't do it. None of us can. Trust in Christ's finished work alone as your only and sufficient hope. Come to Christ in faith. Say, I believe that what you did on the cross, you did for me. I trust that your finished work paid the price for my sins. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Savior. And he will not only give you eternal life, but he will recreate you to be a worshiper who for the end of your days on this life and for the end of eternity in the next, you will give glory to the God who made you for that purpose. Let's pray. God, there's a sense in which perhaps all we should do is just read this passage over and over and over again and be overwhelmed and just eat. It's so easy, Father, for us to have our eyes focused on the here and now and everything that's around us and what's going on with our important lives and forget who you are. Father, we are grateful for this reminder. And I pray, Father, that this vision recorded in this passage of Scripture would stick with us as your people this week as we consider the implications of that and what difference that ought to make in how we live our life until you come to bring us home. Father, we pray for those among us who don't have that faith, who've never trusted in Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would be gracious and merciful to help them feel the weight of that. That there would be a holy fear as they behold, Father, you in all of your glory and majesty. And consider having to give an answer to you for that. God, we ask in Jesus' name that you would give that young person, that older person, that man, that woman, 
We pray that you'd give them faith. Give them a new heart to trust in Christ alone. Lead them across the line of faith and remake them into a worshiper of you. Father, we're thankful for this picture. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.